Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. I'm Keith Donahue from Washington, D.C., where I used to write speeches for Jane Alexander at the National Endowment for the Arts. This is my first novel, The Stolen Child. The Stolen Child is the story of Henry Day, a seven-year-old kidnapped by a strange group living in the dark forest near his home. No ordinary kidnappers. They are fairy changelings, ageless beings whose secret community is threatened by encroaching modern life. I'll be reading from the first two chapters of the book, the first from Henry Day's perspective, and the second from The Boy Who Is Stolen, and called any day. From chapter one. Don't call me a fairy. We don't like to be called fairies anymore. Once upon a time, fairy was a perfectly acceptable catch-all for a variety of creatures. But now it has taken on too many associations. Etymologically speaking, a fairy is something quite particular, related in kind to the naiads, or water nymphs, and while of the genus, we are sui generis. The word fairy is drawn from fay, old French, fee, which itself comes from the Latin fata, the goddess of fate. The fay lived in groups called the fairy, between the heavenly and earthly realms. There exist in this world a range of sublunary spirits that carminibus coela possunt deducere lunum, and they have been divided since ancient times into six kinds. Fiery, aerial, terrestrial, watery, subterranean, and the whole class of fairies and nymphs. Of the sprites of fire, water, and air, I know next to nothing. But the terrestrial and underground devils I know all too well. And of these there is infinite variety, an attendant myth about their behavior, custom, and culture. Known around the world by many different names, Lairs, Genie, Fawns, Satyrs, Foliots, Robin Goodfellows, Pucks, Leprechauns, Pukas, She, Trolls. The few that remain live hidden in the woods and are rarely seen or encountered by human beings. If you must give me a name... Call me Hobgoblin. Or better yet, I am a changeling, a word that describes within its own name what we are bound and intended to do. We kidnap a human child and replace him or her with one of our own. The Hobgoblin becomes the child, and the child becomes the Hobgoblin. Not any boy or girl will do but only those rare souls baffled by their young lives or attuned to the weeping troubles of this world. The changelings select carefully, for such opportunities might come along only once a decade or so. A child who becomes part of our society might have to wait a century before his turn in the cycle arrives when he can become a changeling and re-enter the human world. Preparation is tedious, involving close surveillance of the child and of his family and friends. 
This must be done unobserved, of course, and it's best to select the child before he begins school, because it becomes more complicated by then, having to memorize and process a great deal of information beyond the intimate family and being able to mimic his personality and history as clearly as mirroring his physique and features. Infants are the easiest, but caring for them is a problem for the changelings. Age six or seven is best. Anyone much older is bound to have a more highly developed sense of self. No matter how young or old, the object is to deceive the parents into thinking that this changeling is actually their child. More easily done than most people imagine. Now, the difficulty lies not in assuming a child's history, but in the painful physical act of the change itself. First, start with the bones and skin, stretching until one shudders and nearly snaps into the right size and body shape. Then the others begin work on one's new head and face, which require the skills of a sculptor. There's considerable pushing and pulling at the cartilage, as if the skull were a soft wad of clay or taffy. And then the malicious business with the teeth, the removal of the hair and the tedious reweaving. The entire process occurs without a gram of painkiller, although a few imbibe a noxious alcohol made from the fermented mash of acorns. A nasty undertaking, but well worth it, although I could do without the rather complicated rearrangement of the genitals. In the end, one is an exact copy of a child. Thirty years ago, in 1949, I was a changeling who became a human again. I changed lives with Henry Day, a boy born on a farm outside of town. On a late summer's afternoon, when he was seven, Henry ran away from home and hid in a hollow chestnut tree. Our changeling spies followed him and raised the alarm, and I transformed myself into his perfect facsimile. We grabbed him, and I slipped into the hollowed space to switch my life for his. When the search party found me that night, they were happy, relieved, and proud, not angry as I had expected. Henry, a red-haired man in a fireman's suit, said to me, as I pretended to sleep in the hiding place, I opened my eyes and gave him a bright smile. The man wrapped me in a thin blanket and carried me out of the woods to a paved road, where a fire truck stood waiting, its red light pulsing like a heartbeat. The fireman took me home, to Henry's parents, to my new father and mother. As we drove along the road that night, I kept thinking that if that first test could be passed, the world would once again be mine. It is a commonly held myth that, among the birds and beasts, the mother recognizes her, own, her young as her own and will refuse a stranger thrust into the den or the nest. This is not so. In fact, the cuckoo commonly lays its eggs in other birds' nests, and despite its extraordinary size and voracious appetite, the cuckoo chick 
receives as much, indeed more, maternal care, often to the point of driving the other chicks from their lofty home. Sometimes the mother bird starves her own offspring because of the cuckoo's incessant demands. My first task was to create the fiction that I was the real Henry Day. Unfortunately, humans are more suspicious and less tolerant of intruders in the nest. The rescuers knew only that they were looking for a young boy lost in the woods and I could remain mute. After all, they had found someone and were therefore content. As the fire truck lurched up the driveway to the day's home, I vomited against the bright red door a vivid mess of acorn mash, watercress, and the exoskeletons of a number of small insects. The fireman patted me on the head and scooped me up, blanket and all, as if I were of no more consequence than a rescued kitten or an abandoned baby. Henry's father leapt from the porch to gather me in his arms, and with a strong embrace and warm kisses reeking of smoke and alcohol, he welcomed me home as his only son. The mother would be much harder to fool. Her face betrayed her every emotion. Blotchy skin, chapped with salty tears, her pale blue eyes rimmed in red, her hair matted and disheveled. She reached out for me with trembling hands and emitted a small, sharp cry, the kind a rabbit makes when in the distress of the snare. She wiped her eyes on her shirt sleeve and wrapped me in the racking shudder of a woman in love. Then she began laughing in that deep coloratura. Henry, Henry, she pushed me away and held on to my shoulders at arm's length. Let me look at you. Is it really you? I'm sorry, Mom. She brushed away the bangs hiding my eyes and then pulled me against her breast. Her heart beat against the side of my face, and I felt hot and uncomfortable. You needn't worry, my little treasure. You're home and safe and sound, and that, that's all that matters. You've come back to me. Dad cupped the back of my head with his large hand, and I thought this homecoming tableau might go on forever. I squirmed free and dug out the handkerchief from Henry's pocket, crumbs spilling to the floor. I'm sorry I stole the biscuit, Mom. She laughed, and a shadow passed behind her eyes. Maybe she had been wondering up to that point if I was indeed her flesh and blood. But mentioning the biscuit did the trick. Henry had stolen one from the table when he ran away from home, and while the others took him to the river, I stole and pocketed it. The crumbs proved that I was hers. Well after midnight they put me to bed, and such a comfort may be the greatest invention of mankind. In any case, it's top sleeping in a hole in the cold ground, a moldy rabbit skin for your pillow, and the grunts and sighs of a dozen changelings anxious in their dreams. I stretched out like a stick between the crisp sheets and pondered my good fortune. Many tales exist of failed changelings who were uncovered by their presumptive families. One child who showed up in a Nova Scotia fishing village so frightened his poor parents that they fled their own home in the middle of a snowstorm 
and were later found frozen and bobbing in the frigid harbor. A changeling girl, age six, so shocked her new parents when she opened her mouth to speak that, thus frightened, they poured hot wax into each other's ears and never heard another sound. Other parents, upon learning that their child had been replaced by changelings, had their hair turn white overnight, were stunned into catatonia, heart attacks, or sudden death. Worse yet, though rare, other families drive out the creature through exorcism, banishment, abandonment, murder. Seventy years ago, I lost a good friend after he forgot to make himself look older as he aged. Convinced he was a devil, his parents tied him up like an unwanted kitten in a gunny sack and threw him down a well. Most of the time, though, the parents are confounded by the sudden change of their own son or daughter, or one spouse blames the other for their queer fortune. It is a risky endeavor, and not for the faint-hearted. That I had come this far undetected caused me no small satisfaction, but I was not completely at ease. A half hour after I had gone to bed, the door to my room swung open slowly. Framed against the hallway light, Mr. and Mrs. Day stuck their heads through the opening. I shut my eyes to mere slits and pretended to be sleeping. Softly, but persistently, she was sobbing. None could cry with such dexterity as Ruth Day. We have to mend our ways, Billy. You have to make sure this never happens again. I know. I promise, he whispered. Look at him sleeping, though. The innocent sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care. He pulled shut the door and left me in the darkness. My fellow changelings and I had been spying on the boy for months, so I knew the contours of my new home at the edge of the forest. Henry's view of their few acres and the world beyond was magical. Outside, the stars shone through the window above a jagged row of firs. Through the open windows, a breeze blew across the top of the sheets, and the moths beat their wings in retreat from their perches on the window screen. The nearly full moon reflected enough light into the space to reveal the dim pattern on the wallpaper, the crucifix above my head, pages torn from magazines, and newspapers tacked along the wall. A baseball mitt and ball rested on top of the bureau, and on the washstand a pitcher and bowl glowed as white as phosphorus. A short stack of books lay propped against the bowl, and I could barely contain my excitement at the prospect of reading come morning. The twins began bawling at the break of day. I padded down the hallway, past my new parents' room, following the sound. The babies hushed the moment they saw me, and I am sure that had they the gifts of reason and speech, Mary and Elizabeth would have said, you're not Henry, the moment I walked into the room. But they were mere tots, with more teeth than sentences, and could not articulate the mysteries of their young minds. 
With their clear, wide eyes, they regarded my every move with quiet attentiveness. I tried smiling, but no smiles were returned. I tried making funny faces, tickling them under their fat chins, dancing like a puppet and whistling like a mockingbird. But they simply watched, passive and inert as two dumb toads. Racking my brain to find a way to get through to them, I recalled other occasions when I had encountered something in the forest as helpless and dangerous as these two human children. Walking along in a lonesome glen, I had come across a bear cub separated from its mother. The frightened animal let out such a godforsaken scream that I half expected to be surrounded by every bear in the mountains. Despite my powers with animals, there was nothing to be done with a monster that could have ripped me open with a single swat. By crooning to the beast, I soothed it, and remembering this, I did so with my newfound sisters. They were enchanted by the sound of my voice and began at once to coo and clap their chubby hands while long strings of drool ran down their chins. Twinkle, twinkle, and bye, baby bunting, reassured or convinced them that I was close enough to be their brother or preferable to their brother. But who knows for certain what thoughts flitted through their simple minds. They gurgled and they gooed. In between songs for counterpoint, I would talk to them in Henry's voice, and gradually they came to believe or abandon their sense of disbelief. Mrs. Day bustled into the baby's room, humming and tra la laing. Her general girth and amplitude amazed me. I had seen her many times before, but not quite at such close quarters. From the safety of the woods, she had seemed more or less the same as all adult humans. But in person, she assumed a singular tenderness, though she smelled faintly sour, a perfume of milk and yeast. She danced across the floor, throwing open curtains, dazzling the room with golden light, and the girls, brightened by her presence, pulled themselves up by the slats of their cribs. I smiled at her, too. It was all I could do to keep from bursting into joyous laughter. She smiled back at me as if I were her only son. Help me with your sisters, would you, Henry? I picked up the nearest girl and announced very pointedly to my new mother, I'll take Elizabeth. She was as heavy as a badger. It is a curious feeling to hold an infant one is not planning to steal. The very young convey a pleasant softness. The girl's mother stopped and stared at me, and for a beat she looked puzzled and uncertain. How did you know that was Elizabeth? You've never been able to tell them apart. That's easy, Mom. Elizabeth has two dimples when she smiles, and her name's longer, and Mary has just one. Aren't you the clever one? She picked up Mary and headed off downstairs. Elizabeth hid her face against my shoulder as we followed her, our mother. The kitchen table groaned with a huge feast, hot cakes and bacon, a jug of warm maple syrup, a gleaming pitcher of milk, and china bowls filled with sliced bananas. After a long life in the forest, eating what you can find, this simple fare appeared 
a smorgasbord of exotic delicacies, rich and ripe, the promise of fullness. Look, Henry, I've made all your favorites. I could have kissed her right on the spot if she was pleased with herself for taking the trouble to fix Henry's favorite foods. She must have been extremely gratified by how I tucked in and enjoyed breakfast. After four hot cakes, eight strips of bacon, and all but two small glassfuls of the pitcher of milk, I complained of hunger, so she made me three eggs and a half loaf of toast from home-baked bread. My metabolism had changed, it seemed. Ruth Day saw my appetite as a sign of love for her, and for the next eleven years, until I left for college, she indulged me. In time, she sublimated her own anxieties and began to eat like me. Decades as a changeling had molded my appetites and energies, but she was all too human, growing heavier with each passing season. Over the years, I have often wondered if she would have changed so much with her real firstborn, or whether she filled her gnawing suspicion with food. The second selection is from Any Day's Story, and it's the beginning of chapter two. And I'm going to read a few pages. I am gone. This is not a fairy tale, but the true history of my double life, left behind where it all began, in case I may be found again. My own story begins when I was a boy of seven, free of my current desires. Nearly thirty years ago, on an August afternoon, I ran away from home and never made it back. Certain trivial and forgotten matters set me off, but I remember preparing for a long journey, stuffing my pockets with biscuits left over from lunch, and creeping out of the house so softly that my mother might not know I had ever left. From the back door of the farmhouse to the creeping edge of the forest, our yard was bathed in light, as if a borderland to cross carefully, in fear of being exposed. Upon reaching the wilderness, I felt safe and hidden in the dark, dark wood, and as I walked on, stillness nestled in the spaces among the trees. The birds had stopped singing, and the insects were at rest. Tired of the blazing heat, a tree groaned, as if shifting in its rooted position. The green roof of leaves above sighed at every rare and passing breeze. As the sun dipped below the tree line, I came across an imposing chestnut with a hollow at its base, big enough for me to crawl inside, to hide and wait, to listen for the seekers. And when they came close enough to beckon, I would not move. The grown-ups kept shouting, Henry! In the fading afternoon, in the half-light of dusk, in the cool and starry night, I refused to answer. Beams from the flashlight bounced crazily among the trees, and the search party crashed through the undergrowth, stumbling over stumps and fallen logs, passing me by. Soon their calls receded into the distance, faded to echoes, to whispers, to silence. I was determined not to be found. I burrowed deeper into my den, 
pressing my face against the inner ribs of the tree, inhaling its sweet rot and dankness, the grain of wood rough against my skin. A low rustle sounded far away and gathered to a hum. As it drew near, the murmur intensified and quickened. Twigs snapped and leaves crackled as it galloped toward the hollow tree and stopped short of my hiding place. A panting breath, a whisper, and footfall. I curled up tight as something scrambled partway into the hole and bumped into my feet. Cold fingers wrapped around my bare ankle and pulled. They ripped me from the hole and pinned me to the ground. I shouted once before a small hand clamped shut my mouth and then another pair of hands inserted a gag. In the darkness their features remained obscure, but their size and shape were the same as my own. They quickly stripped me of my clothes and bound me like a mummy in a gossamer web. Little children, exceptionally strong boys and girls, had kidnapped me. They held me aloft and ran. Racing through the forest at breakneck speed on my back, I was held up by several pairs of hands and bony shoulders. The stars above broke through the canopy, streaming by like a meteor shower, and the world spun away swiftly from me in darkness. The athletic creatures moved about with ease, despite their burden, navigating the invisible terrain and obstacles of trees without a hitch or stumble. Gliding like an owl through the night forest, I was exhilarated and afraid. As they carried me, they spoke to one another in a gibberish that sounded like the bark of a squirrel or the rough cough of a deer. A hoarse voice whispered something that sounded like, Come away! Or... Henry Day. Most fell silent, although now and then one would start huffing like a wolf. The group, as if on signal, slowed to a canter along what I later discerned to be well-established deer trails that served the denizens of the woods. Mosquitoes lit upon the exposed skin on my face, hands, and feet, biting me at will and drinking their fill of my blood. I began to itch and desperately wanted to scratch, Above the noise of the crickets, cicadas, and peeping frogs, water babbled and gurgled nearby. The little devils chanted in unison until the company came to a sudden halt. I could hear the river run, and thus bound, I was thrown into the water. Drowning is a terrible way to go. It wasn't the flight through the air that alarmed me, or the actual impact with the river, but the sound my body knifing through the surface, the wrenching juxtaposition of warm air and cool water shocked me most. The gag did not come out of my mouth. My hands were not loosed. Submerged, I could no longer see, and I tried for a moment to hold my breath, but then felt the painful pressure in my chest and sinuses as my lungs quickly filled. My life did not flash before my eyes was only seven, and I did not call out for my mother, or father, or to God. My last thoughts were not of dying, but of being dead. The waters encompassed me, even to my soul. The depths closed round about, and weeds were wrapped about my head. Many years later, when the story of my conversion and purification evolved into legend, it was said 
that when they resuscitated me, outshot a stream of water, a swim with tadpoles and tiny fishes. My first memory is of awakening in a makeshift bed, dried snot caked in my nose and mouth, under a blanket of reeds. Seated above on rocks and stumps, and surrounding me were the fairies, as they called themselves, quietly talking together as if I were not even there. I counted them, and, including me, we were an even dozen. One by one they noticed me awake and alive. I kept still, as much out of fear as embarrassment, for my body was naked under the covers. The whole scene felt like a waking dream, or as if I had died and had been born again. They pointed at me and spoke with excitement. At first, their language sounded out of tune, full of strangled consonants and static. But, with careful concentration, I could hear a modulated English. The fairies approached cautiously, so as not to startle me, the way one might approach a fallen fledgling or a fawn separated from its doe. We thought you might not make it. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Would you like some water? They crept closer, and I could see them more clearly. They looked like a tribe of lost children, six boys and five girls, lithe and thin, their skin dusky from the sun and a film of dust and ash. Nearly naked, both males and females, wore ill-fitting shorts or old-fashioned knickerbockers, and three or four had donned threadbare jerseys. No one wore shoes, and the bottoms of their feet were calloused and hard, as were their palms. Their hair grew long and ragged, in whirls of curls or in knots and tangles. A few of them had a complete set of original baby teeth, while others had gaps where teeth had fallen out. Only one, who looked a few years older than the rest, showed two new adult teeth at the top of his mouth. Their faces were very fine and delicate. When they scrutinized me, faint crow's feet gathered at the corners of their dull and vacant eyes. They did not look like any children I knew, but ancients in wild children's bodies. They were fairies. Although not the kind from books, paintings, and the movies, nothing like the seven dwarfs or munchkins, midgets, tom thumbs, brownies, elves, or those nearly naked flying sprites at the beginning of Fantasia, not little red-headed men dressed in green and leading to the rainbow's end, not Santa's helpers, nor anything like the ogres, trolls, and other monsters from the Grimm brothers or Mother Goose. Boys and girls, stuck in time, ageless, feral as a pack of wild dogs. A girl, brown as a nut, squatted near me and traced patterns in the dust near my head. My name is Speck. The fairy smiled and stared at me. You need to eat something. She beckoned her friends closer with a wave of her hand. They set three bowls before me, a salad made from dandelion leaves, watercress, and wild mushrooms, a hill of blackberries plucked from the thorns before dawn, and a collection of assorted roasted beetles. 
I refused to lass, but washed down the fruit and vegetables with clear cold water from a hollowed gourd. In small clustered, they watched intently, whispering to one another and looking at my face from time to time, smiling when they caught my eye. Three of the fairies approached to take away my empty dishes. Another brought me a pair of trousers. She giggled as I struggled beneath the reed blanket, and then she burst out laughing as I tried to button my fly without revealing my nakedness. I was in no position to shake the proffered hand when the leader introduced himself and his cronies. I am equal, he said, and swept back his blonde hair with his fingers. This is Bika. Bika was a frog-faced boy, a head taller than the others. And this is Onions. Dressed in a boy's striped shirt and short pants held up by suspenders, she stepped out to the front. Shielding her eyes from the sun with one hand, she squinted and smiled at me, and I blushed to the breastbone. Her fingertips were green from digging up the wild onions she loved to eat. When I finished dressing, I pulled myself up on bent elbows to get a better look at the rest of them. I'm Henry Day, I croaked, my voice raw with suffering. Hello, Henry Day? Onion smiled, and everyone laughed at the appellation. The fairy children began to chant, Any day, any day, and a cry sounded in my heart. From that time forward, I was called Any Day, and in time, I forgot my given name, although on occasion it would come back part of the way as Andy Day, or Anyway. Thus christened, my old identity began to fade, much as a baby will not remember all that happened before it is born. To lose one's name is the beginning of forgetting. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit www.kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.